This morning, we're actually taking a break from Acts. We are going to be in the Old Testament in the book of Nehemiah in chapter 8. So you can go ahead and turn there right now. And you might say, James, why in the world are we in Nehemiah? That has nothing to do with, with Acts or something. But here's the reality. Two things. First of all, I love the Old Testament. I'm a huge fan of teaching the Old Testament. And as I prayed about teaching Acts 5, continuing the rest of Acts 5 this week, or teaching something different, I felt like on Thursday afternoon, Thursday evening, the Lord just confirmed, like, no, we're going somewhere else this week. And I think with a week full of changes, it was okay to be flexible and say, okay, Lord, you have something else for us. And so Nehemiah chapter 8 is where we're going to be. And I want to give you some context because we're jumping into the middle of a book in the middle of the Old Testament, in the middle of history, so to speak. And see, what's cool about this chapter is we're going to see revival. You see, at this point in time, the Jews are coming back out of Babylonian captivity. You see, we're going to be between the times of King David and Jesus' first coming. So we're approximately at the year 444 BC in this section that we're in today. And see, they had come out of Babylonian captivity in the year 535. The, the uh, remnant of the Jews, about 50,000 Jews, were sent from the Persian king uh, Cyrus, who had taken over, basically received the Jews by taking over the Babylonians. He sent back the Jews to the land and said, you guys can start to rebuild. You can do what you need to do to make your sacrifices unto your Lord. And so if you remember in the books of Zechariah, in the books of Haggai, in the book of Ezra, we see them coming and preparing to build the second temple. The first temple that Solomon built was destroyed. And for 70 years while they were away in captivity, it laid there in ruins. So when they come back out in 535, they're prepared to, to rebuild the, the temple and the city. And then they start working on that. They slow down about 520. That's when Haggai and Zechariah start saying, hey, man, it's time to get back to work. And by 516, the temple's built. Ezra shows up in about the year 458 and teaches the people how to walk in the things of the Lord. And then Nehemiah, he showed up in 444 to begin building the walls to protect the city. And see, the walls were important because they wanted to reestablish as a people. They wanted to reestablish the promises of the Lord. They wanted to serve in the temple and give offerings to the Lord. But they wanted to do it without enemy or animal coming in and taking their crops and taking their people. So they had to work on the walls. And what miraculously took place, I believe it's a miracle because you had a bunch of people that didn't know how to build walls came together and they built the walls around the city in 52 days. So it was quite a miraculous thing. I mean, imagine today, just I, I, have, I have my parents that are trying to have something built and it's taken six months, right? Like imagine having a whole wall built in 52 days without like machinery and stuff, right? Like modern day machinery. I think that's a miracle. But that said, that that's where we're at. They've built the walls around the city. They're back in the land after captivity. And that's where we're at in Nehemiah 8. I hope that makes sense of where we're at. But we're going to see three things today. We're going to see the reading of the word. We're going to see the reaction to the word. And we're going to see responding to the word. And again, like any great revival, revival begins with a, with a mutual working of the Holy Spirit and the word of God. Again, why is it so important that I get online and teach a Bible study this morning? There's many studies out there. You can listen to many great studies. But to me, I want to be fresh in the Lord week by week as much as we can. We want to be in the word together. Amen. So with that said, let's look at Nehemiah chapter 8. We're going to see the reading of the word in verses 1 through 8. Let's begin reading verses 1 through 3. It says, Now all the people 
gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So right off the bat, what we have here is we're told that there's this gathering of the people. They gathered as one man, it says here, right? In that open square in front of the water gate. You see the water gate was on the eastern side of the temple wall, right? It was there in the temple court. And so the idea was the, I'm sorry, it was, it was on the side of the city wall, I should say, not the temple court, but on the city wall. And so they've just completed this wall on the water gate. It's so key because often the word of God is connected with water, right? A cleansing agent. When we're thirsty, we need that living water, right? As Jesus cried out in John 7, 37 and 38, he says, if you believe in me, as the scripture said, out of your heart will, will flow just torrents, rivers of living water, right? And so it's fitting that they gather together and you say, well, why are they all gathering? Well, the reason is we were told that it's the first day of the seventh month. I believe it said that here in verse two, right? Well, what that would mean is on the Jewish calendar, this is the first day of the month of Tishri, which is like September or October to us, but they had a different calendar, obviously, at that time. But what it was, it was the seventh month to them. And see, the first day of the seventh month, according to Leviticus 23, 23 to 25, they were to have an event called the Festival of Trumpets. Let me read to you from Leviticus what this was to be. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of complete rest, a holy convocation commemorated with trumpet blasts. You shall not work at your occupations. You shall present the Lord's offering by fire. So here's what it was. On the seventh month, the first day of the seventh month, you would get together. Everyone that believed in the Lord, they would assemble together and they would rest from their work and as an assembly, they would draw to the Lord and reflect upon his holiness. They'd be offering sacrifices to him. They'd be worshiping him in spirit and in truth. And what a perfect time in the Lord's sovereign hand that they completed the work just, I don't know what, four days or so prior to this, according to Nehemiah 6.15. I believe it was the 25th day of Elu, which is the month before uh, Tishri, or Tishri, right? So basically, it's been four days since they completed the walls. And they, they say, we got to gather and rest and celebrate this, this festival of trumpets. And so like, man, we've worked so hard in the Lord. Let's get together. Let's take this moment of rest. And the festival itself, being on the first day of the seventh month, it kind of had a spirit of like repentance in mind because on the 10th day of the seventh month was the day of atonement. And see, the day of atonement was the day where the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. He would make an offering, a sacrifice for the sins of the people, right? So there's this big celebration of, hey, we're working so hard. Let's take this rest, though, and remember God's goodness. And it would lead up to God covering the sins another year, right, Went through those sacrifices. You might say, hey, James, why don't we celebrate that here at Calvary Chapel McKinney every year, the day of atonement? 
Well, here's the deal. There's been one ultimate day of atonement for us now in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10.10 tells us that through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, once and for all, he has sanctified those that believe in him. Amen. And so we don't have to go through the sacrificial process of taking animals out and doing this once a year and covering our sins. In Jesus Christ, our sins have been made white as snow, washed and removed, not just covered, but removed as far as the east is from the west, according to Psalm 103.12. And so that's exciting for us. But at this point in time, it's still a sign that, man, the Lord is willing to forgive. The Lord is merciful. We should gather and celebrate him for his mercy. But here's the thing that's so cool about this. Did you notice who asked Ezra to get the book? It was the people. That's huge, right? In verse one, it says that they actually, I'm sorry, in verse, uh, yeah, in verse one, they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. Man, anytime we have people asking for truth, this is a good sign that revival is about to begin. You see, the people here, we know according to Ezra 9 and 10, we read those chapters, their history as a people, they started going out and doing the things they weren't supposed to be doing. They were um, unequally yoked. They were marrying up with, with pagan wives. Again, this wasn't some kind of issue against foreigners. That's not the issue. It was the fact that they were marrying people that did not believe in the God of Israel, and they were taking the hearts of the men away from the God of Israel. That was happening in Ezra 9 and 10, and now the same uh, you know, the same heritage of people are coming to that same Ezra. And they say, Ezra, read us the law. <laughs> read us the book. Read us truth. And I'll tell you, there's something so exciting about this, is that at one, at one time, their spiritual condition was, you would probably write these people off and say, man, there's no hope for them. <laughs> but see, after the Lord had worked this miraculous I don't know, this miraculous production of putting this work, this wall together around the city. I mean, again, it wasn't like he magically made a wall up here. People put in hard sweat and tears just building this thing. But there are people that were probably considered unqualified to build. But if you remember, it was not by might nor by power, by the spirit of God. It was the same way the temple was built as, as, as Zechariah uh, prophesied to Zerubbabel, that man, by the spirit, you'll get these things done. And now that that wall has been built, they said, man, we recognize our need for him in everything. We recognize our need for God and we want to know him more. Man, I pray that the culture today would start to realize, man, we're a mess because <laughs> we've all been there. I've been there. And at some point we say, man, this isn't working what I'm doing. But then you see God just do one thing in your life, just a glimpse of something. You say, man, I want to know more about that. <laughs> Man, I pray that as the church, we could be some kind of work that would just prove to the world that, man, Jesus is alive and well as he cleans up and sanctifies his people. Because remember, revival begins in the house of the Lord, just as judgment begins at the house of the Lord. If we don't want to obey his word, why would the world ever obey his word? Why would the world ever take his word serious if his own people do not? And see, that's what's so interesting here. They're starting to take the word seriously. They realize, man, we need God. And that need, that, that realization for that need only comes from the Holy Spirit. But to know who God is comes through the word of God. And that's why Romans 10, 17 comes. Faith, it says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so I love it because Ezra, just a faithful teacher, man, he runs off. He goes and gets that book, right? He's like, I'm going to go get the word. I'm going to teach it. And it said, right, in verse 
in verse two, that all could hear with understanding on the first day of the seven months. He taught anyone who could hear, anyone that would possibly be able to comprehend. So that means, first of all, of like age of understanding, but also in verse three, it says men and women alike. And it says that he taught them knowing that it was for all people. That's important, right? I hope we understand that the gospel is not just for like people that are like good moral pagans that are pretty cleaned up. <laughs> and it's not just for the absolutely extreme in the gutters of sin, right? It is for everybody. The gospel should not be doled out in the sense like, well, that group needs it, but that group doesn't. That group's doing okay with like government programs. They're doing okay with their money. They're doing, man, we need the, we need the gospel for everyone. Amen. And we need to be taking it out to everybody. And Ezra says, man, I'm going to preach this to everyone, rich, poor, young, old men or women. And it says that in verse three, they were attentive. And when were they attentive from? This is crazy to me. It says they were attentive uh, the whole time from morning until midday. That means 6 a.m. to noon. Imagine if I went six hours today. I have a feeling that those numbers on YouTube would drop after about the first hour, right? You guys would be like, six hours, James, you're out of your mind, dude, right? The fact that Ezra could teach for six hours, and not only did the people tolerate it, they were attentive to it. I think that's huge. This is the same people that seemingly didn't want anything to do with the word of God previously. And now they're just craving it. And praise the Lord for guys like Ezra and the leadership that are going to step up and say, man, this is our opportunity to give out the gospel, to give out the law of God. Because remember, we're pre-Jesus, we're pre-cross, but the whole law always pointed to Jesus Christ. Amen. There's that scarlet thread, so to speak, that runs through the law, that runs through the Old Testament, that Jesus has not abolished it. He has fulfilled it. It always pointed to the fact that we have sinned, we have fallen short of the holiness and righteousness of God, and that we need something, someone to step in and, and cover our sin. And Jesus Christ is the one, God himself, the son of God, put on flesh, came, died upon the cross, and in our place, he took on our sin that we might receive the righteousness of God. Amen. And so look at what happens in verse four through six. They begin reading the word. It says, so Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him at his right hand stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Urijah, Hilkiah, and Masiah. At his left hand, uh, Pediah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshalom. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. This is just an awesome scene. Again, I'm going to use the word revival a lot. It's the title of the study. If we're titling the study, it's Nehemiah 8, but it's revival. And see what's happening here is that Ezra, he steps onto a platform. I think that's cool, right? Like, you've, have you ever wondered why we have a stage in, in church? Maybe not at our home when we're doing home church, but at most Calvary chapels or churches in general, you're going to have a stage. It's not because we're trying to be like House of Blues or the Roxy or some concert venue. It's because it makes sense. You want the guy that's speaking to kind of be up in front of the people in some in some to some level so that they, everyone in the room, as many as are, are in the back room, can see him up front. And so what Ezra is doing is they said, hey, let's construct this thing. At some point, they built it for this purpose. 
And the idea was they could stand on this platform and everyone would be able to see them and it would help them project. So they're using all of their resources that they have at their disposal to reach as many as possible. Can I tell you, the Lord laid on my heart as I was thinking about this a little bit, just, just real briefly. I think about social media. Social media in itself is an inanimate thing, right? Like in the sense that it can, it, 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 it's neither good nor bad. It's, it's the heart of men that make it good or bad, right? Well, when we take social media, it can become a very evil thing. It can become a very great tool to proselyze, to, to, to preach, to reach the gospel. And I just thought, man, what a great platform if we use it well. What a platform it can be for us to, it can be detrimental if we use it poorly, right? Man, making sure that we're using social media in a way to where, man, let's just tell people about Jesus. And then I go beyond social media and I think whatever platform you have, what's your position at work? What's your position in your family? What's your position with your friends? Man, we have opportunity to be leaders that, that, that lead people to Jesus, right? That lead people into truth. And so as we see here, there's also 13 other men with Ezra on this stage. I think that's important. Ezra realizes this is not a one-man operation. I think this is so important. Can I tell you, this week alone, <laughs> I realized the benefit again. I realize it all the time, I feel like, but especially this week, the benefit of sound, wise counsel and the multitude of counselors. As we navigated this week of what should we do for Sunday, I was so blessed to have the guys from our leadership team, from the board, from friends in our church, just guys encourage me and say, man, this is what makes sense. And it was so great because I didn't have to bear that pressure of like, man, I have to make these decisions, just me and the Lord, like figuring this out. I have this group of guys that can confirm and lead with it. And not just in things like this week, but I think ministry wise, just to have guys to rely upon is such a blessing to know that you can trust them because they know the word, they love the Lord. And these 13 men are clearly they're seemingly leaders because Ezra says, hey, you're going to be up on the stage with me up here. And the reality is, I think they're there for a couple of reasons. They're probably there because, again, they're showing people that, hey, there's not just Ezra committed to the truth. There's other men that are godly men in the community that believe and walk in these things. But also, these guys would help Ezra in whatever he was doing. Because you see here, it says that the book was open. You see, I love it. There was something on the stage besides just a bunch of men. <laughs> That's great if you have 14 good, strong men filled with integrity or whatever. But if you don't have the book up there, <laughs> all you have are a bunch of men and the church is just watching men now. You see, we should never get our eyes off the book, off the word of God and put it on man. The focal point is the opening of the word of God. On Sunday mornings, I pray that you would know that as you come to our church services, right? That the focal point as blessed as the fellowship is, right? To gather together as people, as blessed as the worship may be. The focal point's the word. Because if we get the word out of here, if we stop opening the book and closing it, or if we stop looking at the book and start looking to man, the, the church is going to be in great trouble. But as we continue to open the word of God and we stand before people and they see us, they, it says that they could see Ezra and these guys. They stood up above them and opened this book. It set an example to everyone there that, man, we should be doing that. We should be in the word. And these men that were up there, I'm sure they were helping them through it. They recognized that, man, this is an important thing to do. We're going to help Ezra with this. They probably took turns reading the word, which is interesting, right, to think about because they have six hours of reading to do. <laughs> so they probably kind of cycled through reading through the law. But in this section here, I think about the fact you say, 
Look at these people. When Ezra read the word, it says that they stood up in verse five. The people are regarding this as the true word of God. See, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And see, the people have the proper response. They say, this is the word of God. We're going to stand. We're going to give it due reverence. And they're humbly, they're, they're, they're laying on their face in verse six, right? They bowed their heads and they're, they're, they're face towards the ground. They're worshiping the Lord. And they're saying, amen, amen. I throw that word out there a lot. I know it's kind of one of my things I do. But that word amen essentially means, do we agree? And see, when, when, when Ezra is reading the word of God and men are saying out loud, amen, amen. That's huge. That means that men are beginning to acknowledge that God's word is true and right, and they agree with it. Man, how much we pray as a church, or we should pray, that the world would begin to say amen and amen to the truth of the word of God. But it begins with God's people. We have to believe this. We have to read it, receive it, believe it, and walk in it. And see, when we do those things, it will give evidence. It'll give way. That there's something to this. And the world, man, I'm telling you, the world will not be able to deny this. They'll see it as truth and they will want in. That's where revival will begin with the word of God. Amen. See, there you go. Amen. All time, right? Look at verse seven and eight. It says, also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodijah, Messiah, uh, Kelida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law. And the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. So in verse seven, we have another list of, of names. Can I tell you a trick that I learned about pronouncing uh, these names in the Bible properly? Um, it turns out that as long as you say them confidently, people believe that you're pronouncing them uh, correctly. So I have no idea if I said any of those names right, but you get the gist of what I'm doing, right? I hope you can bear with me on that. We could take the time and do a name study. I will tell you, the names in here are very cool. They mean things like the king is the Lord, uh, the, the Lord is, is God, uh, riches, all these cool things in their names. But I'm just telling you, I'm kind of probably butchering how you pronounce these names. <laughs> but that said, here are all these people on the stage. We, we shouldn't lose the principle in this. And see there, again, they're appointed to help the people to comprehend what the law says. And see, for us in ministry, if all we do is we just read the word at people, that's not good enough. See, they have to know what it meant to them. They have to know if I get up here every Sunday morning and read you verse by verse from this Bible, but I don't give you any kind of context. I don't give you any kind of application of what it means to you as a human being to respond to the word of God, then that's not good enough. Honestly, I mean, just reading out loud, that can confuse people even further. I mean, especially the law, right? If you start reading the law in some places, you might get confused on what this all means to you in 2022. <laughs> but when you have someone that can uh, rightly divide the word of truth, as 2 Timothy 2.15 says, it says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, but rightly dividing the word of truth. See, that's what ministry should be. The leaders should be there rightly dividing the word and instructing the people, saying, this is what it means to you. 
And see, Ezra had the help of all these people, these men that would go out. And it seemed like what Ezra would do is he would read. And then these men and the Levites, they were from the tribe of Levi that God had appointed for his service. And they would go out and the people would stand in place, it said, right? So there's order here. It's not like they were all running around and interrupting and doing crazy things. They stood in their place and maybe they just threw a hand up, I don't know, or whatever it was. And here's the Levites and the helpers of Ezra, the other guys in ministry would be going around and they'd be answering questions. Some have said maybe they were translating it from Hebrew to Aramaic. That's a possibility. But I think at the end of the day, whatever it took to put it into the words of the layman, if that was a language or a dialect or just understanding, going and helping people to receive what was in the word. And then we have verse eight. Can I tell you, verse eight is a, is a kind of life verse for me personally. And it's a ministry verse for Calvary Chapel McKinney. I think it should be a ministry verse for every church. Let me read it one more time. Verse eight, it says, so they read distinctly from the book in the law of God. They gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. So think about what they're doing here. They're taking the word of God. They're reading distinctly from it. Then they explain the context, right? They give the sense. And then they help them to better understand how it applied to their relationship with the Lord. Why are we teaching about things that are not in here at any church? Why are we just reading this and then rambling about all kinds of other things? We should read this in its context and then help you understand so that it may draw you in closer to that relationship that the Lord desires to have with you. I mean, it doesn't get any more simple than that. We like to complicate it. I've heard some people say that teaching verse by verse is cheating. I'm like, praise the Lord, because you don't want me making up new things or giving you my opinion every week. You want me sticking to this. Trust me, this is the map. This is the roadmap that we want to use. My notes are secondary. My opinions are like, are like far under the list, beyond try, try or fourth level. My opinions don't matter. It's the word and what the Lord wants to do with us through the power of his spirit, that application, Lord willing, that comes week by week. And so in this sense, the leadership's going around and they're helping people to know the Lord. Because again, it seems like they have reverence towards God. They have that healthy fear of the Lord. But think about Proverbs 9, 10. It says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. How do you get knowledge of the Holy One, the knowledge of God? This is how, by opening his word. And see, we know that it's, a, again, a mutual working of the Holy Spirit and the word. Do you remember when Jesus was on the road? I believe it was on the road to Emmaus, right? With the, with the, the two men that were there, the two disciples. And in Luke 4, 24, 27, it says, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, Jesus expounded to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So he taught them from scripture who he was. That was how Jesus taught them. And then in Luke 24, 45, it says, And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. That's like the Holy Spirit entering in and giving us that understanding. As we draw near to the Lord, he draws near to us. We draw near to him in his word. He draws near to us by giving us his Holy Spirit. And see, not just Jesus, but I think about Peter taught this way. We saw it in Acts 2 and Acts 3. We know that Philip teaches this way according to Acts 8. Paul teaches this way in Acts 17 in Acts 28 and all over the place. <laughs> this is why we teach the way that we do. This is the model that works. You have the word of God, you have the Holy Spirit mutually working together 
to bring revival in the house of the Lord, that that revival may go out to the world as well. Amen. And so that's the reading of the word. Quickly, we have the reaction to the word. Look at verses 9 to 12. Let me read this. It says, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly because they understood the words that were declared to them. (laughs) So we see this reaction of the people in verse nine, right? The reaction is an emotional one. What happens here is the, the Levites and the leaders, Ezra and Nehemiah, they have to say to the people, hey, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Don't mourn or weep. That means the people were mourning and they were weeping. (laughs) They realized their shortcoming. They were were not obeying the Lord previously. And now they're conscience stricken. They realize, man, we have sinned against the Lord and we've offended God with our many violations of his law, right? That's what they're wrestling through. They're convicted. Think about it. For six hours, the Bible has been read to them and explained to them. Imagine how many times you and I would be convicted reading the Bible for six hours with strong godly teaching and the power of the spirit convicting. Man, it would be a a, a pretty uncomfortable day, I would think, especially if we just kind of come out of a season where we weren't really walking tight with the Lord. That was kind of where the people were here. But you see, Hebrews 4.12, it tells us, for the word of God is living and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joint and marrow and into discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And see, they were convicted, man. They're hearing this and they realized they were willingly, sinfully rebelling against the Lord previously. And they probably in that moment, they regretted it. They thought, man, the Lord has done so much for us. He's brought us out of the land of the Babylonians. He's brought us back to this place. And we were walking in disregard to his word. We were half in, half out. And they're standing here, and man, I'll tell you, when you realize you've broken the law, when you realize that you've fallen short, you, you, you just fear those consequences, right? You start to question, well, do I really belong to God? Does he really still care for me? Does he love me? Can I tell you, first of all, you, you're fearful because you fell short of his holiness, right? And it says in Leviticus 11.45, I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy as I am holy. So that's the standard, be holy. <laughs> Well, they weren't being holy. And Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death, right? But can I remind you? Romans 6.23 goes on to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. See, I love this because the reality is, yes, you deserve death, but Jesus died in your place. And according to Galatians 4.4 through 5, when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoptions as sons and daughters. We now, as we trust in the word and the trust in the logos, as we trust in Jesus Christ, 
We are delivered from the wages of sin, which is death. And see, Ezra tells the people, the, the, all the leadership, they say, hey, don't mourn. Look at the reality is this isn't a day for where you need to be mourning. This isn't a day where you need to be lamenting. This is supposed to be a Sabbath day of rest. Remember, it's the festival of trumpets. We're supposed to be proclaiming God's goodness today. And you're just sitting here remorseful over your sin. Can I tell you what I get from this section? That's great if you're remorseful over your sin. There's a healthy, God-given remorse over our sin. That's a good evidence that the Spirit is working in our heart. But if we stay there and begin operating out of that, if we just think, man, we got to stay sorrow-filled so that God knows how sad I am about my sin, that's not what we're told here, right? What did they, what did they say? They said, look, at the reality is the, the joy of the Lord is your strength. You're not going to be made stronger by walking around remorseful over your past sin. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Now look forward. Look at the fact that you're standing in the place that God promised to give you, Israel. Stop worrying about what happened back here. Ask for forgiveness. Confess those sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9 says. But now get over those things and begin walking in the reality that the joy of the Lord is your strength. See, we don't do ministry walking around in this sorrowful way of, man, this is so miserable. It's so hard. We should be excited and rejoicing that the Lord is choosing to use us, <laughs> that the Lord is allowing us fellowship with him again, that he's brought us in. And we say, why is that? Because the Holy Spirit convicted our hearts and we came to know him through his word. And hopefully we've responded as Psalm 51:17 says, David wrote, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, oh God, you will not despise. So you see, in reality, yes, we humble ourselves. We say, Lord, I'm broken over my sin. But then we confess and say, all right, I'm a new creation now. It's time to walk in the newness of life. In 2022, it's time to walk in the new things. And I'm not talking about new fancy things that are all about yourself. I'm talking about walking in the strength that is the joy of the Lord. <laughs> That's what we should be operating out of. Remembering that the Lord Jesus has come and that he died in our place and took away our sins and it should generate a response of great joy in us. Look at what it said, right? In verse, in verse 12, it said, and all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly because they understood the words that were declared to them. You see, they started to celebrate the goodness of God. They understood now. See, when you first hear the law, you're like, dude, I'm a dead duck. Everything that's in here, I've broken it. I've done it. <laughs> and then someone comes and explains, but God delivered us from sin through Jesus Christ. Amen. And when we understand that it changes everything. And now we can walk in that joy. And we understand that God, he desires mercy. That means he desires to give out mercy. Hosea 6.6, 6, right? That's literally what the Lord said. I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offering, more than sacrifice. I don't want you just walking around sad, giving sacrifices because you're so sorrowful for your sin. Do that when it is appropriate. But then I want to pour out mercy and let you know me for who I am, God would say. And see, Psalm 119, 16 says, I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. And see, when we remember the word of God, we remember that he loves us. 
And you might say, well, James, I don't know. I feel so convicted, man. I, I feel like the Lord is condemning me. First of all, Romans 8.1 says there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ, right? Now, you might be confusing conviction with condemnation. See, conviction is a tool of the Lord to make us and refine us to be more like him. We need to run towards conviction. We run away from condemnation. Uh, condemnation. Condemnation is from the enemy. Conviction is of the Lord. And as we run into conviction, we are made more like him. And although it's uncomfortable at first, see, it's the Lord. He's chastening us. Hebrews 12, 6, we know this. The writer of Hebrews said, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you're convicted this morning over sin, congratulations. <laughs> it means that you still have that Holy Spirit dwelling in you that's saying, hey, this is not right. Confess that sin, move away from that sin, and start walking in the joy of the Lord that is your strength as a believer in Jesus Christ. Amen? And so the last thing we see is we see the responding to the word, verses 13 through 18. Let me read 13 through 15. It says, now on the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, go out to the mountain and bring olive branches, branches of oil trees, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of leafy trees to make booths as it is written. Okay, so let me tell you the first sign of revival here. <laughs> The leaders of the houses came back the second day to get more word of God. <laughs> I don't know about you, but if you're in a situation where you're really uncomfortable and you're just counting down the minutes to get out of there, that would be the first day if you didn't like conviction. But then the second day, they showed up again and said, we want to know more about the law. We want to know more, Ezra. Teach us more about God and what he desires of us. Continued obedience. That's a sign of great revival. And see, it's important here to note that these were the heads of the father's houses of all the people. They came and met with the priests and the Levites. So these are, to some extent, the laymen of the community, but they're leaders in their own right. So this made me think a little bit about the fact that what was happening here is they realized, man, we need to become leaders. We can't just be relying upon Ezra the priest, upon Nehemiah the governor, upon the Levites, the, the tribe of, of the, to minister unto God, to to like draw us into the Lord. They realized they needed to have their own personal relationships with the Lord and a knowledge of God so that they in turn could step into their roles as leaders, as heads of their families, so that they could lead their own family, the next generation into the things of the Lord. And see, a, gr a group of us on, on Thursday mornings have been meeting and we've been going through Titus, really. We just three chapters of Titus. We're going to be in Titus three, Lord willing, this Thursday. Um, reach out to me if you want information on when that is and how that works. But we've been working through Titus. And the whole point was, man, we want to be godly men. We want to be godly leaders in our home. And see, I think about Titus 1. It just tells us the qualifications of godly elders and leaders in the church. And I think we can take those and also apply them to godly men in the homes. And Titus 1.9, it, it exhorts potential leaders saying, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. And so we see these men, these heads of the family saying, man, I want to grow and learn more about the word of God. 
so that I can be drawn close to the Lord and then in turn guide, lead, and teach my family how to walk rightly. And we know in Titus 2 and in Titus 3, it also encourages, hey, women, you should be doing the same. Women of God lead up children of God. And men and women of God together have godly marriages that testify to the world everywhere. And it begins with knowing the word of God, because then we know the Holy One, the true God, and we know what he desires of us. And when we walk in it, man, that's where obedience or, and, and, and obedience comes and joy is found in obedience. As we walk obedient to the things of the Lord, we don't have to worry about consequences of sin popping up. When we walk in obedience to the word of the Lord, we have peace and fellowship with the Lord. Now, let me be clear. Even when we're falling short, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ who covers our sins. But it is so much more blessed (laughs) to stay in that box that is the Lord's expectation of us, his desire for us, that we may walk in unity with him. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. If you have questions, reach out on this, of course. But in verses 14 through 15, they're there the second day. And they're reading through, and it would seem that they came to Leviticus 33, which prescribed the Feast of Tabernacles. And see, this was supposed to take place two weeks from the time that they started reading the law. So this, they're, they're reading it on the second day, and it's supposed to be on the 15th of day of the month they would have this feast. Let me read you Leviticus 33, 33 through 36. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the feast of tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day, there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. So there you go. It's a Sabbath day. Then for seven days, you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. So you're going to worship him with sacrifice and praises, right? On the eighth day, you shall have a holy convocation and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It's a sacred assembly, and you shall do no customary work on it. So the idea was everyone would come together. They would have a Sabbath, and then for seven days, they would dwell in these little, uh, these little booths. They would stay in these little, little tabernacles. <laughs> and what it was, according to Leviticus 23.43, it was a feast to recall God's great deliverance out of Egypt and the Lord's faithfulness to provide for them during their time of wandering in the desert when they had the tabernacle. When they had to move around, they weren't sure where the Lord was taking them, but they trusted him. This kind of reminds me where we're at as a church right now, building wise, right? We're seeking the Lord. Lord, where would you have us to go? We're trusting him. We know that he's going to take care of us because he's taken care of us in the past. And whatever he did then, it worked out for his glory. He's going to do it again now. We are to, in like manner, just seek him and worship him. And in this case, They had to remember, man, the Lord has delivered us before. He delivered us from sin. He delivered us by by, by that Passover, by putting the blood of the lamb over our door. He delivered us from death before. Now he'll deliver us from the death of sin if we trust in him, if we walk after him and, and no longer wander into the wilderness that is disobedience as we desire to walk in obedience to him. And it's awesome because they come across this thing about the Feast of Tabernacles. And they're like, man, it says here we're supposed to build these booths. (laughs) And see, this is the opportunity, the first big opportunity for them since the Day of Atonement on the 10th day of that month. It was that was coming up, right? They they said, this is the first opportunity we're going to have. What are we going to do about it? Are we going to obey the Lord? Let me tell you what happens. Look at verse 16 through 18. It says, then the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths 
each one on the roof of his house or in their courtyards or in the courts of the house of God and in the open square of the water gate and in the open square of the gate of Ephraim. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and they sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day, the children of Israel had not done so. And there was very great gladness. Also, day by day, from the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a sacred assembly, according to the prescribed manner. So let me tell you what's happening here. Tons of obedience to the word of God. And see, what's happening here is obedience is proving their revived hearts, that they are experiencing revival, that they love the word of God. They love the Lord. They want to walk in his ways. And so what they do is they go out and they get the materials. They start gathering all the things that were listed in verse 15, the olive branches, the oil tree branches, the myrtle branches, the palm branches, all these different things to make booths. Again, you're like, what is a booth? What's a tabernacle? It's just a little shelter that they would live in. And remember the man the, our ancestors went through, they went through these, this era of wandering. And they had to live in these uncomfortable places, but the Lord never failed them in the uncomfortable. He didn't let them grow out of their shoes and out of their clothes. He provided for them. He gave them manna. He gave them quail. He gave them water. He gave them defeat over the uh, victory over the enemies, I should say, and the conquest in Joshua. He provided judges for them when they walked away, the people that would come and deliver them. He provided them both good kings. And then in the times of bad kings, he provided prophets that would direct them. The Lord always provided. And by building a little booth and staying in it for seven days, you would say for those seven days, look at this reminds us of when the Lord took care of us before. Can I tell you this morning, you may be doubting how the Lord's going to take care of you in the season that you're in. He's going to take care of you. He's faithful. He honors his word above his own name. It says, and I believe Psalm 143 too. The fact is, he says, look it, I will not break my word. If I have promised something, I will follow through with it. And see, all of these branches, you have like the oil tree, right? That represents the Holy Spirit. You have olive branches, that's fruitfulness. You have myrtle branches, that represents God bringing his people back in the land. It, it, was a, it was a branch that represented the faithfulness of God to fulfill his promises. All of those things, and then you have the people they're going and they're getting them and they build them anywhere they can in the city. Did you note some of the locations that they built these things? They were at the house of God. That relates to holiness, right? First Peter 1.15 says, he who called you is holy. Speaking of the Lord, you also be holy in all your conduct. So first of all, as we remember in this, in this festival, in this feast of tabernacles, the people to remember that, man, God is holy. We should be holy too. And then some of them are gathered by, again, the water gate. And remember that Watergate, it's not a political thing involving Nixon in this case, right? This is a Watergate involving uh, the word of God. It's Ephesians 5, 26. It reminds me of that husbands are, to, are to, to, to wash their wives in the word of God, right? It's a cleansing agent. And in this case, as you get into the word of God, it brings you further into holiness. And then some of them were at the gate of Ephraim. Ephraim means fruitfulness, double fruit, double fruit right? <laughs> and so the reality is, man, as you walk in holiness, according to the word of God, fruitfulness will come out of your life. 
and see everyone's gathered there and they're just so excited to observe the Feast of Tabernacles because they've dealt with their sin. They At this point, right, the, the, the Day of Atonement has occurred if they're already in the Tabernacles, right? So they, that's happened. Their sin has been dealt with. They've come. The revival has begun. And now they're walking in obedience. And it says they've never t- like had this event like this since the time of Joshua, the son of Nun. That's some 800 years prior to this event. No, it hadn't been done like this in the sense that, man, everyone as an assembly was bought in. They said, this is the way to live, to walk in obedience to the things of the word of God. And you see what they were doing is they chose to celebrate God with full obedience instead of partial obedience. They didn't just have a feast. This is probably the first time in 800 years they built little tabernacles to go with the feast. We know they celebrated the feast in between Joshua and this event in Ezra 3, 4 through 7. They celebrated the feast, but they didn't have the tabernacles. And if they did have tabernacles, they didn't do it in this kind of unity, it would seem like. This is the greatest feast of tabernacles that had happened. And it's because everyone was in unity to surrendering to God as Lord. And see, that's where revival begins. When we acknowledge that this is his word, that he is God and that we should walk in it, man, we're blessed by that. And what did they do? Did they say the last verse? Every day, day by day during that feast, they continued in reading the book of the law of God. <laughs> continued obedience. May we pick this up every day, expecting the Lord to speak to us. May we pick this up and say, Lord, you will provide for us, not just for our sins, but you'll give us joy that is our strength to go out in your power to reach the lost, to testify to those in need, and that you will continue to sanctify me day by day for your glory. Amen. And see, this is why I love the Old Testament. This is 444 years before Jesus Christ, but everything here is pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God the Father except through him. Jesus said that in John 14, 6. He also said in John 5, 24, he said, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life, shall not come into judgment and is passed from death into life. And can I remind you one more time that at the Feast of of Tabernacles, when Jesus had arrived, when he was on the scene in John 7, 37, 38, he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And see, Jesus offers his promise today. If you acknowledge and understand that you have sinned, that you've fallen short of that perfect holiness of God, you need atonement. You need a sacrifice. Jesus says, I can be that sacrifice. And when you receive Jesus Christ, the only sacrifice that can save you from your sin, you also receive the Holy Spirit, that living water that quenches that thirst of every other desire and flows out of you in a way that testifies to the world that Jesus is real and true. For those of us online this morning, I believe you're online because you already believe in Jesus Christ. You trust in him as Lord and Savior. Continued obedience, man. Walk it out. Believe that this is truth. Apply it to your life. Watch that fruitfulness come. Watch the joy of the Lord in your life continue to flow out of it. And if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, today is the day of salvation. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we come before you now, Lord, and we just thank you for your goodness, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity that we have just to get into your word and remember that you're faithful to forgive, you're faithful to pour out mercy and grace and to provide, but Lord, you're holy and you call us to walk in your obedience, Lord. 
So, Father, I pray that we would be obedient to your word, Lord, and I pray that you would just touch the hearts of everyone online today, that we would strive to be made more like you. But, Lord, when we fall short, we're covered by your grace, Lord. We thank you for that. But, Father, I pray for anyone that's online right now that has not already put their trust in you and that this would be the day of salvation for them. And if you're online and you haven't put your trust in Jesus Christ, you can do so beginning with this prayer. You would say, Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me, Lord, of all of my sin. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I trust in you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.